Well, we continue in the Gospel of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. We are in Matthew chapter 6, and you'll notice the passage there in your bulletin is a large portion of chapter 6 of the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to start reading in verse 25, which is a a few verses down from where your printed copy is, and read that portion, which has to do with our topic for today, and that is anxiety, being anxious. So hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not, have, not, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But... Seek first the kingdom of God in his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. On Mount Sinai, Moses heard the word of the Lord and the finger of God inscripturated the great commandments. And most of them are phrased, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. In that same spirit, our Lord, when he comes to earth and he is on the mount, And he is delivering the word of God himself because he is God. He stays on that same vein. He says, do not. And what we have here in the gospel of Matthew is a whole cluster of do nots. Do not be like the scribes because they set aside the word of God and the law of God for the traditions of men. Do not be like the Pharisees when they pray. Because they love to be seen and heard of men. Do not be like them when, when they give their alms. They do it on the street corners so that they can be seen of men. Do not be like the Gentiles or like the nations or the peoples, the folks round about you, everyone else. Now we know the Lord is addressing his disciples in this entire sermon. And he's teaching them, he's discipling them. In fact, he's doing to them what he wants them eventually to do 
to the nations. He says that he should, that they should make disciples, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So the Lord is not only instructing us, but he's giving us the pattern, laying down the template that we should see and follow in our disciple making, teaching about life in its normality, life in its earthly manifestation, our existence here on earth, and how it relates to heavenly things, kingdom things, godly things. And he's seeking to change our hearts, to change our beliefs in order to change our behavior to change our credenda, that we might change our agenda. The things we believe will work themselves out in the things we do. And so using comparisons and negations, he says, do not do this, do not be like that. On the other hand, do this and be like this. So that's kind of the overall context for all of these passages that we've looked at here so far in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're not through with this one. We have one more Sunday to deal with this particular pericope of Scripture, and we'll be looking at it next week. So if you say, Ron, you didn't even mention this, that, and the other. Well, maybe I'll mention it next week because this is a, a teaching session more than anything else. The Lord is now teaching by contrast. He's laid out for his disciples that which they should do. And on this one, this do not... Or if we were crafted in mosaic terms, thou shalt not, it's about anxiety. The Lord now is getting down to some brass tacks. He's getting down to where we live. Because what he's going to talk about are the basic necessities of life. The must-haves. The things we must have in our life. All of us, regardless of who we are, we have to have these essentials for life on earth. And he's teaching us something about asking for our daily bread. We're dealing here now with matters of survival as a race. And three times in this text, he says, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. So it's easy to see that he never really deviates from that particular subject for this particular aspect of the teaching. So what does the Lord teach us about anxiety? Well, for one thing, is the choice of the word he uses. He uses this, not used very many times in the scripture, but he uses a word, and it's used a few times in this passage. It's used a couple of more times in the New Testament. And it's, it's a word rich in meaning. And I think if we want to kind of understand what anxiety is about, we need to kind of look at the different ways that this particular word is understood. It's a word that means to be overtly concerned, to have anxious or high expectations, to be intense in our intentions. It means to brood, to fret, to inquire, to ponder, to speculate. And to give consideration to what you would call cares of this life, issues of this life. And the three things he spells out are food, drink, and clothing. And he deals with them with beautiful imagery to tell us what he has in mind. He refers to the 
fowls of the air and the flowers of the field. In our anxiety for food and drink, he says, take a look. Look, first of all, at the fowls of the air, the birds, the birds of the air. They don't have to do anything. They don't reap. They don't sow. They don't reap. And they don't gather into barns. In other words, they don't perform the whole range of agricultural function. From the breaking of the field, the sowing of the seed, all the way through the gathering of the harvest and garnering it in the barn. They don't have to do any of that. They can just fly around, scratch around. But it's interesting he uses as an example the fowls of the air or the birds. Because in Scripture, the birds don't have a very good reputation. And I, when my grandsons were a little smaller, we had angry birds. You know, the little stuffed animals that we, we got. Well, uh, the birds sort of have that reputation in Scripture. Birds in the Old Testament, especially, uh, the birds are sometimes called the fowls of the air. And they are also seen often as that which is filthy. In fact, it was unthinkable that God would use a raven to feed the prophet Elijah. Remember that? The fowls of the air are that which are not too attractive and not too, too uh, valuable either. They fly in massive flocks. If you've ever seen a large group of birds, flock of birds flying over in their migration during the seasons, it's overwhelming. I remember being down on my ranch a few uh, years ago and there was this big black cloud that was coming in and I could see it and then I realized it was birds. And they flew around and they finally came to rest on the property next to mine and they covered from wingtip to wingtip they covered the whole acreage and I could probably look at 125 acres of land from my vantage point and they completely blacked out the entire place and they there's a little water there and they were able to kind of take their bath and get their drink and and take their rest and as I went on about my business working on my place I watched them and eventually they began to fly certain small portion of them went up Another one sort of moved in. They flew around. The others came into formation. And you've seen it. The, the, the massive amounts, the teeming masses of the fowls of the air. Individually, the, they've not only been considered filthy in Scripture, especially the condor, the eagle, the vultures, the birds that are scavenger birds. But they're also considered cheap. There's so many of them, for one thing. And the most insignificant, cheapest offering that you could bring in the Old Testament sacrificial system was a, was a turtle dove or the offering of a bird. If something so unattractive, so plentiful and expendable, and all of that, the Lord takes care of them with respect to food and drink and provides everything they need for their survival, what do you think, and here's a key word that's used three times in the text, your heavenly Father. That's really what Jesus is trying to teach us. It's not about how we're to live. It's not another set of rules. It's not more do's and don'ts. It's not just merely setting down a pattern and saying, this is the path, walk ye in it. Do thou likewise. No. What we're being introduced to is the care and the love of the Heavenly Father. That's what Jesus wants to show us, not, not the birds of the air. And he says, aren't you uh, more valuable than they? 
And then he looks at the flowers of the field. He calls them the lilies of the field. It's interesting to listen to some of the scholars talk about what particular species of flower that might be concerned here. But to me, that's the blue bonnets. That's, that's how I read my Bible. I read my Bible all the way through with the star of Texas. You ever been to the hill country in the spring? Plains and hills beautifully arrayed with all those blue bonnets and Indian paintbrushes and the multiple wildflowers as far as the eye can see. Do you think the tailors and the dye masters of Solomon's kingdom could come up with anything more beautiful than that? Spacious, wonderful glory, and yet even the flower fades and the grass withers. You go to the hill country in early April, you'll see the blue bonnets begin to come forth. You go in early May and they're gone. They wither, they die. If God sees after the flowers of the field, don't you think he'll take interest in you? Don't you think he notices you? And this is really what the Lord is teaching. He said, don't be concerned about these basic elements of your survival. Your food, your drink, and your clothing. These are all necessities. We all see that. These, is, these things the Lord teaches is so patently obvious. Sometimes it's hard for us to grasp how he could be so simple and down to earth. Food, how long can you go without food? Maybe a month. Drink, especially water. How long can you go without water? A few days. Clothing, how long can you get? Well, let's don't even imagine that. The Lord takes care of us, even in these most basic mundane things. And that's really what the Lord is trying to get us to see, is that we're now, we belong to the Lord. And he loves us. And he cares for us. And our heavenly father is going to look after us. Just like he clothes the fields, he's going to clothe us. He's going to give us what we need. I've always been a bit of a worrier. And as I read this definition of anxiety, I found myself in almost every word and none of it was flattering. And I get that from my mother. I blame it on genetics. My mother was a chronic, perpetual worrier. She could come up with more reasons why something might not work or what you need to do just in case of something. All the contingencies, many of them negative, and tried to prevent them all. Really, in my life, I've only worried about three days. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The guilt and the regrets of yesterday just eat us up, don't they? They keep us from enjoying the moment quite often. The cares of today, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, and then the cares and the needs thereof. You remember when Jesus gave the parable of the soils? 
Sometimes it's called the parable of the seed, but really it's the same seed. Sometimes it's called the parable of the sower. Really it's the same sower. It's really the parable of the soils because there are different soils. And one of the soil was such that there would be tares and weeds and thorns and briars that would grow up and choke out of the seed. And that's where many of us live our two days. We live it with the cares of this world, the pleasures of this world, the riches of this world, choking out the things of God. And that's what the Lord in this whole sermon is getting us to do, is to shift our worldview from this plane to the heavenly, to understand the kingdom of God, the things of God. We saw it last week in the treasures that we store up and that we lay up and that we set forth. The Lord is trying to move us away from the cares of today, the cares of this world, the things that choke out the things of God. And the third day I worry about is, the, is tomorrow, the uncertainties, the possibilities. What will tomorrow be like? Do I have enough of this? Have I saved enough? Have I worked enough? Have I... What, what happens if this happens? Those sorts of things can just destroy our soul. And by the way, in this passage, wherever you see the word life, like the very first verse, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about life. And he talks about how your life is, is uh, uh, affected here in this verse. The word that's translated life in this verse is the word suke. It's from the word we get soul or psychology. It's our souls. What's, ex- what's at stake is our very soul. And so the scriptures have a lot to tell us about what we are to do. But the Lord has a rebuke in this passage, and we always need to pay attention to rebukes whenever they're in scripture. The scripture, you know, is profitable for correction, for reproof, for rebuke, and for training in righteousness, according to Paul writing to Timothy. So we need to see that it's not just for instruction. The scripture is not just for inspiration. It's also for correction, for rebuke, and for reproof. And there's a bit of rebuke in this passage, and it comes in one single word in the original text. It's just one word. Now, it's translated in our text here, of course. It's, text, it's translated, O ye, or you, of little faith. It's actually a compound word. It says, you little faith ones, you with shriveled up faith, you with anemic faith, weak faith, short faith, poor faith, you that have barely any faith at all. That's who he's talking to. In other words, he's talking to me. He may be talking to you as well. It is a lack of faith. It's a lack of belief. You do know that the word faith and belief is the same word in the original. It's just translated differently in the scriptures depending on whether they need a nominative or verbal form and context, etc. But it's always the same word. Belief. You who do not believe. You who have a weak faith. And that's what I'm here to do this morning, just to encourage you to trust the Lord, to pray the prayer that is prayed in the scripture, Lord, increase our faith. Or the cry of the man 
that said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Or to stand in the shoes of doubting Thomas when he said, unless I see and verify with empirical evidence, I will not believe. And then the Lord showed him some empirical evidence and he believed. You see, our faith has an element. I've been repeating this almost every sermon now for years that that faith in Scripture is loaded. There's several elements to our faith in order to have a full, well-orbed, saving, biblical faith. It requires certain things of our whole soul. There's an element of knowledge in faith. We have to know. That's why the Lord has gone to so much trouble over the years to reveal himself, to make himself known. Then they will know that I am the Lord is repeated over and over and over and over and over and over in the book of Ezekiel. The Lord wants to be known and we need to know the Lord. That's how we have our faith increased is by learning more about him. But then there's also the element of obedience. Our faith must have feet. Faith must produce works. Faith must have some real substance to it. It needs to go forth and do. It needs to follow and obey. But then faith also involves trust. A dependency. And a confidence. And an assurance in our Lord God. And as we mentioned in in this particular passage, the Lord is pointing us to the Heavenly Father. He says, your heavenly father feeds them, in summary of the birds and so forth. And then down in verse 32, he says, your heavenly father knows that you need all of these things. The Lord knows. The Lord cares. And the Lord is near. Let me point you to a passage of scripture that has been an inspiration to me for years and It thrilled me the first time I saw it years ago. I just couldn't get over it. I kept going back to it. You might want to mark it in your scripture. It's in Exodus, way back in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 2. And you know the story there. It's the story of the Exodus. And it starts off telling about the children of Israel being in bondage, in slavery in Egypt. And God is going to deliver them by the hand of Moses. And you all know the story quite well. But listen to this this, uh, little phrase it's a little portion here in exodus chapter 2 says during the many days the king of egypt died and the people of israel groaned because of their slavery and they had been in slavery for about 300 plus years it's several generations in fact they're the whole uh, dynasty of pharaohs had come and gone and they had forgotten all about who Joseph was and what the beginnings of God's people in Egypt were all about. It was a whole different generation with a whole different view of things. And so these, these pharaohs had, um, had reduced Israel to slavery and a, and a wretched slavery at that. And the people groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. If I were a preacher, I'd talk about the importance of crying out for help. There's no shame when you find yourself in the foxhole or you find yourself in the gutter or flat of your back. There is no shame in calling out to the Lord. In my distress, I cried to the Lord, said the psalmist. And the Lord hears us and expects us to do that. 
Don't find yourself in any place in life, even at some of the most extreme points, emotionally and socially and financially and any other way, that you won't cry out to God for help. That's what Israel did in their bondage. They cried out to the and by the way, the word usually in the in the the word that's usually used in the Old Testament that means to cry out audibly, to cry out where you can be heard physically. They cried out to the Lord. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. The psalmist prayed, Lord, incline your ear. And here's an example of the Lord inclining his ear. And the cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Many of of us are enslaved. We're enslaved by various kinds of sins and disabilities there's all kinds of 12-step programs. But I would say before you begin one step of any kind, you need to cry out to God for deliverance from whatever it is that has you enthralled and is taking you down in this life and sadly and certainly in the life to come. And this is the next verse. And God heard their groaning. God heard them. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You remember those covenants that God made with the patriarchs back in the book of Genesis? God remembered those covenants. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And that's what I tell you this morning. God sees your heart, He sees your condition, He sees your need. Not just for daily bread, not just for food, not just for clothing, not just for drink, but he sees your need at the human level, at the natural level, at the material level, but also even more so at the spiritual level. God sees. He knows all. The all-seeing eye detects everything. Nothing escapes his surveillance system. You may feel like you're isolated, that you're far, that you're down, that you're removed, that you're in darkness. But God sees it. He saw the people of Israel in what a simple phrase, and God knew. He knows. He cares. He's a heavenly father. He will give you what you need. He'll emphasize this several other ways in the sermon before he's done, but, but here he isolates on it. Two encouraging words of Scripture, I think, that we need to look at in the New Testament. They're very short. They're, each one is written by a great apostle. The great apostle Peter tells us this. It talks about the mighty hand of God, and then he says, Casting all your anxieties, and it's the same word that's used in our Matthew text, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. The reason you can do it is because he cares. He sees, he knows, he remembers his covenant. And so Peter just says, casting all your cares, your anxieties, your frets, your dilemmas, your difficulties upon him for he cares for you.
Let's don't ever forget we have a wonderful Heavenly Father. Paul, the other great apostle, gives us a few words as well, found in the book of Philippians. It's the same word for anxiety. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request call out, cry out, tell God what you need, be made known to the Lord. Did you catch the two things? Peter assures us that he cares. And Paul assures us that the Lord is at hand. He is near. He's a loving Heavenly Father. Jesus came to make Him known. The Bible says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the express image of God's person. He's a true image, a true icon of the true God. As truly man and truly God, He manifests, He makes known our Heavenly Father. And that's what He's telling us in this passage. His Father and our Father is near, loves, cares, knows, call upon Him. Now.